This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM on Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. A convoy of desperately needed aids entered the earthquake-ravaged northwestern Syria after the United Nations struck a deal with the country's regime to open up more border crossings. Meanwhile, a team of more than 70 Australian rescuers have started work in southern Turkey, and the death toll from the quakes is now more than 37,000. But the arrival of the team more than a week after the disaster means it has little chance of finding survivors. The ABC's Sean Rubenstein Dunlop joined the group on its mission in the devastated city of Antakya. He joined me a short time ago. Sean, it's now more than eight days since the earthquake. What chance does this Australian search and rescue team have of finding and rescuing survivors? To be blunt, Sabra, very little. The operations here have really turned to body retrieval. And while there are some attempts still going on to find people that are alive, the chances are very, very, very slim. Rescue workers arrived in this city two days late, and even then there were far too few. But this Australian team does have an important job to do. There are more than 70 of them, uh, New South Wales fire and rescue workers, paramedics uh, and engineers. And uh, we spent some time with them today as uh, they surveyed uh, the ruins of this city. It's really a wasteland, quite hard to comprehend the scale of the devastation. And what they've been doing is uh, is trying to pick out buildings where they might have a chance of uh, retrieving bodies or with the hope of a bit of a miracle, uh, finding a survivor. We spoke with the task force leader of this disaster assistance response team, Daryl Dunbar, and here's a little of what he had to say. Yes, the chance of the life has diminished, but there is always hope that we will find someone. The scale of this um, disaster is immense and it's overwhelmed local um, emergency services, so we're here to support Turkey in all disaster relief efforts. I've attended a number of emergencies throughout the world and Australia. I've attended Threadbow, Christchurch, some natural disasters. Nothing I've ever seen is on the scale of this disaster that's affected Turkey and nearby Syria. Are other search teams finding any survivors? Well, against the odds, rescuers are still finding some. Here here again in the city of Antakya, a 65-year-old man has just been pulled out alive. That's more than 200 hours after the quake. A 15-year-old girl in this city was uh, pulled out alive here as well. But those are very, very rare stories when tens of thousands of people have already died. About more than 37,000 is the latest death toll. And the UN believes that will double based on how many bodies there are still left in the wreckage. The UN says the rescue phase is nearly over. We're seeing a lot of rescue crews withdrawing. This city was full of them just a few days ago. It's now a bit of a ghost town and demolition has begun. We're seeing people, crowds of now homeless people watching buildings being destroyed and it's really sinking in for them here that their loved ones are unlikely to be found. And Sean, tell us about what's happening over in the border in Syria now that, uh, well, the UN's managed to convince the government there to allow more aid into rebel-held areas. That's a really big step for the people of Syria. Aid has been 
desperately needed in the rebel-held parts of northwest Syria. Uh, the country has, of course, been in a civil war for more than a decade. And while some international aid from Syria's allies has been going to government-controlled areas, the country hasn't been passing that through to opposition-held parts. So the UN was struggling to get aid through the one border crossing it was allowed to use, leaving leaving people in a desperate situation there. But now it's managed to negotiate for the use of two more. And today, 11 trucks have travelled through one of those new cross-border points, carrying hygiene kits, shelter and kitchen sets. And many more trucks are expected through in the coming days. On top of that, the UN is appealing now for donations, more than $400 million in donations, it says, is needed to address the urgent humanitarian needs there. Sean Rubenstein-Dunlop reporting there from the southern Turkish city of Antakya. New Zealand's recovering from a cyclone that's lashed the North Island, leaving hundreds of thousands without power and pushing emergency services personnel to their limits. The Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, has described Cyclone Gabriel as a weather event not seen in a generation. Thousands of people were forced to leave their homes. The storms caused the most damage in coastal communities on the far north and east coasts of the North Island. For more on this, I spoke with TVNZ's Logan Church, who's in Auckland. Logan, the pictures are absolutely devastating. What's the situation like there this morning? Yes, it's been a really scary night for many across the North Island of New Zealand. The focus at the moment is very much on the Hawke's Bay, where entire communities uh, remain cast off, some surrounded by flood water, um, others have had their roads cut off by slips or uh, landslides. Communication across the region remains a particular challenge. The focus is very much on the town of Waidor, um as of right now. It's, about, it's a town of about 8,000 residents and as of right now, there's um, no way of getting into the town. There's rising floodwaters. We are seeing some incredible pictures of um, basically up to 10 to 15% of the town totally underwater. And civil defence are concerned that there's a limited amount of food and drinking water. So the race is on there to try and get that town reconnected. And as I said, communication remains one of the biggest challenges for civil defence authorities. The district council there is only in touch with the outside world via satellite. So a lot of work today to uh, get that communication back up and going and those transport links open as much as they can. Many homes are still without power. When is the situation expected to ease? That's a big question. As of this stage, we understand that around 2,500 people are still evacuated um, because of Cyclone Gabriel. And while um, some areas are coming back online in terms of power, we've been told by the authorities it could take weeks for some areas. It's hard to describe just the sheer scale of destruction here. I've covered cyclones and storm events for many years here in New Zealand, and I've never seen anything quite this bad. Are you getting enough help, Logan? Well, that was one of the reasons why the government declared a national state of emergency. It's only the third time in New Zealand's history where that happens. The first time um, was during the Canterbury earthquakes when an entire city, our second biggest city, was decimated by an earthquake. And the second time was during COVID-19. So that, that 
tool essentially unlocks nationwide civil defence resourcing and coordination to be thrown at this event. And the emergency services are just working as hard as they can to reach everyone. We've seen incredible pictures of people being winched off roofs and helicopters um, as much as they can in a cyclone. Amazing tales of heroism from firefighters and just locals who see that something needs to be done. Sadly, though, this weather, weather event has turned fatal. Civil Defence overnight have confirmed that a woman in north, the north of the Hawke's Bay on the east coast of the North Island um, has sadly died after a landslide collapsed onto her home. Um, fire and Emergency are also still searching for a firefighter here in Auckland on the west coast who went missing two days ago after a house that he was in collapsed. They were trying to evacuate residents when that house collapsed. Um, we're certainly not out of the woods yet. There's um, bad weather still in much of the country. The worst of the weather seems to be going south towards the centre of the North Island. Yeah, there's a, there's a long way to go before we're out of this. TVNZ's Logan Church in Auckland. Households and businesses already struggling with skyrocketing inflation are facing astonishing council rate rises of more than 100% in parts of the country. New South Wales, more than a dozen local governments have applied to the pricing regulator for double-digit increases, warning their financial positions so weak they're considering cutting services and closing council facilities. And that might not be confined to just that state alone. Here's National Regional Affairs reporter Jane Norman. The prospect of an affordable home in a quaint country town prompted Kate to pack her bags and move to Tenderfield in northern New South Wales nearly a decade ago. I wanted to get a house and uh, it was cheaper to buy a house in Tenderfield than anywhere else at that stage. But yes, yeah, so it's ironic, isn't it? Ironic because Kate, who doesn't want to be identified, is now contemplating moving again. The Tenterfield Shire Council has applied for a cumulative rate rise of 105% over two years. Kate says that it'd see her annual rates bill top $4,000, nearly double the rates for a four-bedroom terrace in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. I'm actually on a pension, so it's just impossible. I'm just going to have to go. And and where do you go in this kind of environment? Um, I've been looking at buying a place on the floodplains, (laughs) which is dicey. Um, You know, it really is very sad. You know, sometimes I just take too much. In nearby Urbanville, the proposed rate increase has resident Cynthia Kopok revising her household budget. Well, naturally, I was quite flabbergasted, quite frankly, Jane, because um, that's a huge amount of money to be loading onto ratepayers in a small, remote, rural village like Urbanville. How will you, how will people in Urbanville afford it? No visits to dentists, minimised visits to doctors, Turn off the water heater when not needed for showering or bathing. No house insurance, no household contents insurance. On and on I could go, Jane. Tenterfield Shire Council is $5 million in deficit. It has few ratepayers and, among other things, 1,700 kilometres of roads to maintain. The Shire blames the New South Wales government for its precarious financial position, which has been pegging council rate rises well below inflation. 
it's not the only one. More than a dozen councils have applied for double-digit rate rises. Queenbee and Palarang's seeking a 64% increase over three years. Snowy Monero has asked for a 53% hike. The Federal Minister for Local Government, Christy McBain's electorate, covers the two council areas. I think it's incredibly tough for local governments at the moment. We know that we've had a period of extreme weather events um, and this is also off the back of um, New South Wales government capping rate increases at you know 0.7 percent in some circumstances. Is rate pegging now a cautionary tale for other states? We know Victoria has adopted it. Absolutely I think rate pegging whilst politically popular actually sets communities up to have to pay more in the long run. Some of the core issues facing New South Wales councils sort of aren't unique to the state. Should rate payers across Australia be bracing for potentially big rate hikes this year? Yeah, look, it's a possibility. I don't think that there is an organisation across the country that isn't really looking at their books at the moment and figuring out whether they can continue to run the same services for the amount of money that they currently have coming in. Um, And I think communities have to understand that uh, sometimes if we can't afford to pay for those services, they're going to be cut. Federal Minister for Local Government, Christy McBain, ending that report from Jane Norman. Australian basketball star Paddy Mills has vowed to use his fame to campaign on this year's referendum for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. The Boomers veteran, who was the country's first Indigenous Olympic flag bearer, is rarely politically outspoken, but has been a proud promoter of his Indigenous heritage throughout his decorated career. Brittany Klein filed this report. When it comes to key moments in the history of Australian men's basketball, Paddy Mills has been a part of most of them. Mills catch and shoot for the answering three. Australia back on top. History beckons. The Boomers point guard was crucial in Australia's first ever win over the United States in 2019. Two years later in Tokyo. Mills for the layup adds another two. He led the Boomers to their first Olympic medal, a bronze. Not only was the NBA star Australia's first Indigenous flag bearer at the Games, he insisted on bringing parts of his Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture into the team's preparations. Footage emerged of Mills in his green and gold uniform doing a traditional Indigenous war dance before one of the Boomers games. Look, I just think I've, I've tried to, um, you know, make a difference of where I can and, and use myself as, as a person to be able to bridge the gap almost. Despite being based in Brooklyn in his 14th year on an NBA contract, the upcoming referendum for a voice to parliament back home is front of mind. A voice to parliament would be a permanent body representing First Nations people that would advise government on policies and laws which impact their lives. Paddy Mills' mother, Yvonne, was a member of the Stolen Generations. When you say importance, I guess it's 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 because it's affected us, you know, and, you know, my mum and, and my aunties and uncles had to, to deal with that. Yvonne raised Paddy in the nation's capital in the early 90s, working for government and running basketball programs for Indigenous kids. To be able to be in this position now and... and um, still be able to achieve the things that I've been able to achieve because um, of my parents and because of my family. Who inspired Mills during the pandemic to pick up where his parents left off, starting his own program, Indigenous Basketball Australia, to give kids a pathway to play professionally and connect with their history and culture. How can you politely take these um, you know, walls down 
And I think it just comes back to education. The more that you're able to um, educate people on who you are and where you're from. Mills has also brought more recognition for Indigenous players in the coveted American League, speaking here when the NBA added an Indigenous night to its fixture. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we have all gathered here today. Mills' former teammates at the San Antonio Spurs even learnt of the Marbo decision in a pre-game speech before they went on to win the 2014 NBA championship. Mills hopes Australians in 2023 will consider the need for change. As this time comes up, you know, I think it's just about coming together as, as um, easy as it, it seems to say. But look, I, I just try to use, you know, my projects to be able to um, educate people that way. Australian basketballer Paddy Mills ending that report by Brittany Klein. Donald Trump officially has a rival for the Republican Party's nomination for president. His former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, she's announced that she's going to run against her old boss, despite previously saying she wouldn't. Ms Haley says the party needs generational change, but it'll be a tall order taking on Mr Trump, who retains a firm grip on a core part of his party's base. Here's North America correspondent Carrington Clark reporting from Nikki Haley's home state of South Carolina. I was born and raised in South Carolina. With a slickly produced social media video, Nikki Haley officially kicks off her campaign for the highest office in the land. The Washington establishment has failed us over and over and over again. It's time for a new generation of leadership to rediscover fiscal responsibility, secure our border and strengthen our country, our pride and our purpose. Nikki Haley might hit many of the same talking points as other Republicans, but she's like no candidate that's come before. She's a 51-year-old woman of colour born to Indian, Sikh, immigrant parents. She first rose to national prominence when she was elected as governor of South Carolina back in 2009. She served six years and left office with high approval ratings with support across the political aisle. In the state's biggest city, Charleston, people have welcomed her entry into the race. I'm very happy about it. I think she has been a great governor for South Carolina in the past. She has uh, very good judgment and she's very impartial and she's very honest. Politics aside, because I'm very liberal, I think uh, she is a... a intelligent lady and um, pretty uh, moderate. Nikki Haley is only the second official candidate for the Republican nomination for president. Donald Trump announced last year that he would seek his previous job again in 2024. She'd previously said she wouldn't run against him, but today she implicitly took aim at his electoral results. Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. That has to change. Republican strategist John Ferry says Haley is still relatively unknown to most Americans outside South Carolina, but he applauds what he calls an audacious move to throw her hat into the rink so early. Because she's going to get a lot of slings and arrows from President Trump and from other critics. There's a lot of other people who want to run against her. So it takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there and get ready for the onslaught. Trump has already begun. Through a spokesman, he calls Nikki Haley a career politician who's only out for herself. It may just be the two of them so far, but the field is expected to quickly congest. Polls suggest Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is Donald Trump's biggest rival, though he hasn't formally declared. John Ferry says Trump retains the support of about 40% of the Republican base and remains the odds-on favourite for the nomination. 
In the United States system, you don't need a majority, but just need more votes than any other candidate. If the other 60% don't want Trump, he says they need to quickly coalesce around one candidate. If they don't have a realistic shot, they better get out or Donald Trump's going to be the nominee again. A year out from the first primary contest and the formal jockeying for the Republican nomination has kicked into gear. This is Carrington Clark in Charleston, South Carolina, reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. US President Joe Biden promised to restore relations with China after the turbulent Trump years. Could balloons in the sky derail it all? Today, our East Asia correspondent Bill Bertels on spying and the fragility of ties between the world's superpowers. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.